short stories are a sprint, a novel is a marathon, and you kind of need to live in the work and with the work, um, because I find that when I start out, I don't, um, you know, I have sort of a vague idea of where I'm going, but a lot of things come up in the course of writing, and that's because I am immersed in the world. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Michelle de Kratzer was born in Sri Lanka and moved to Melbourne at the age of 14. After graduating from her undergraduate degree, she completed a master's degree in French literature in Paris and began a PhD at the University of Melbourne, where she was one of the founding editors of the postgraduate journal Antithesis and a founding editor of the Australian Women's Book Review. Michelle subsequently worked for nearly a decade as an editor for Lonely Planet and set up the company's office in Paris. She published her first novel at the age of 42 and has since written five more. Michelle has won a slew of awards, including the Miles Franklin Award and the Christina Stead Prize for Fiction. She now lives in Sydney and her latest novel is Scary Monsters. Michelle, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Andrew. I'm so pleased to be talking to you. So place is incredibly important in your writing, not just, of course, your uh, uh, non-fiction work at Lonely Planet, but your, uh, your fabulous novels. Now, let me ask you about the place where you grew up, Sri Lanka. How did that shape you? I think um, I'm very grateful to have spent the first 14 years of my life in Sri Lanka. I think one of the things it showed me gave me an experience of was the the great inequality of the world uh, how some people have very little in life but it also taught me that you know I, I grew up there at a time of austerity in Sri Lanka um, where there were very few um, imported goods available and Sri Lanka was yet not manufacturing much itself. So it was a time where even middle-class families, which mine was, um, had very little in terms of material possessions. I think we didn't have a record player until I was about 13 and then um, it was a second-hand one. Wow, given that your father was a judge, that's quite striking. You know, this is what people, people in Australia simply don't have, can't have a sense of what it was like in Sri Lanka at that time. Um, you know, yes, my father was a judge. We were, we were among the privileged, but we had very little. We had books in our house, um, most of them old, inherited um and you know it was our furniture was was um old second hand some of it antique um we just uh, I, I remember the excitement of getting a transistor radio which i my father got for me when he he went to japan uh i think when i was about 12 and you know, for his work, and he brought me back this transistor, which was my pride and joy. Um, but really, you, you so you can imagine if a middle class family has um, has so little. Um, and I should add that when we got the record player, I think we we only had sort of two records um, to play on it. Um, but you can then imagine what people who who were you know um living on much more modest incomes how they had to get by with with much and did get by with much less so i think 
things it taught me was that, you know, material possessions are, are nice, they're lovely, but you don't have to have them. Um, and I, the, the, I mean, the whole consumer revolution didn't really happen in Sri Lanka until the 1980s. Sri Lanka had no television. Um, television didn't arrive until the 80s. And I think, you know, the, the sort of avid consumerism of the West and, you know, um, well, of everywhere these days, for the privileged at least, it, it, um, it's something that, that I still find, oh, you know, slightly stomach-turning. Do you think growing up in an environment like that uh, forces children to be a little more creative and coming up with uh, games of their own? Yes, very possibly. Um, I was the youngest in my family by a very large um, gap. So I actually just spent a lot of my time reading. But yeah, I think, you know, um, children with siblings of a similar age, um, yeah, you know, we... Um, I think just, yeah, we invented games and, um, but, you know, I think children are, children are naturally creative. I think children find ways to be inventive and um, amuse themselves even today with, you know, iPads and um, everything else at, at their fingertips in, in a country like Australia. Um, I think there's just a natural curiosity about the world when you're a child, um, a delight in, I don't know, the way the leaves are arranged on a branch of a shrub or the colours of flower. I remember that I remember hearing that one of my sisters, when she was, you know, young, sort of seven or so, um, had gone out into the garden one day with her paint box and painted, started painting all the flowers different colours. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing kids do, um, which is just sort of delightful and charming, I think. So my uh, sort of impression of Sri Lanka growing up was very much um, shaped by the, uh, the, the confl conflicts. And uh, I remember visiting Colombo in uh, the mid-1990s and being struck by the fact that the roadblocks had been in place for so long that uh, uh, large corporations had uh, had advertisements up on them. Uh, but your your experience of Sri Lanka is, is very much pre-conflict, isn't it? And, and I, so I suppose then the, the writing about the conflict is uh, uh, you viewing Sri Lanka from, from the, the distance of Australia rather than living through it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, we were lucky to leave in 72 and the Civil War broke out in 83. There were, before that, um, incidents of, of conflict, um, but nothing... Uh, there was a um, there was ethnic conflict, but the the most serious thing was in 1971 when there was a uh, an armed uprising of students and um, and various other other factions, um, which was put down very brutally. But you know there was a curfew. I remember that very vividly, you know, the curfew and the fear. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was people, it was, it was a sort of Maoist uprising and anyone who was, who, who spoke English as a first language, anyone who had any kind of Western um, education was targeted. So if that uprising had been successful, uh, my entire family would have been killed. Um, mm. So, you know, I, I do remember that very vividly. Um, yeah, a nationalist uprising, I should say. So, you know, it had its, um, was also targeting um, other ethnicities. Mm. 
So your latest novel is uh, Scary Monsters, and it uh, it plays with the form of the novel in a way that uh, that I really love. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of Tim Winton's The Turning, which combines a whole lot of over overlapping short stories, or Peter Carey's True History of the Kelly Gang, which is written in a sort of wonderful Australian vernacular. Uh, in Scary Monsters, you have a a flip book in which there's two stories and you can start from whichever end you like. Uh, what led you to decide to, to write a book in that, in that format? Uh, what was it about the story that you felt would work uh, to have, have a book which was half about the past and half about the future? There were a few reasons, so I'll just go through them slowly. The first thing is that the novel which has these two halves, um, is concerned with migrant experience. So each half is narrated um, by an Asian migrant um, to Australia. And one of the things that I wanted to convey with the flip format was that migration is a process that turns people's lives upside down, that disorients you, um, that that um, makes you ask yourself, you know, what is this new story that I'm living in now when you've moved countries? So I wanted the form of the novel to embody that so that just, you know, fleetingly and on a micro level, the, the, the reader would ex experience some of that um, disorientation. The other thing was to do with form. Um, and there's, I suppose, the conventional understanding of a novel is that it's a single continuous narrative, um, which has coherence of theme, coherence of um, style, uh, coherence of voice, etc. Well, I wanted to play with form, which is something that you know um, artists often do, and so I decided I would have two narratives, which. Although they're both told in the first person uh, and they're both concerned migrant experience, there's that continuity, but the voices of the characters are very different. And as you mentioned, one narrative is set in the past, one in the future, one is set in France, one is set in Australia. Um, so there's this sort of radical discontinuity. It's, in other words, what I was trying to do was to break the form of the novel, but there is a little sort of, maybe a little narrative bridge. So breaking the form of the novel and kind of putting it back together again at the same time, which is what migrants have to do. You know, once you move countries, you're, you've, you've broken something, you've broken your life in a sense, and you have to put it back together again. And many people do, most people do, but, you know, the, the break is there. There's always a before and an after in the life of a migrant. So those were ideas I was planning to, um, I was aiming to convey with the form of the novel, the flip format. The earlier section is uh, concerned with Lily, who's an Asian Australian living in France. Uh, and there is, there's a, a lovely notion there where you talk about the energy of conversations between young people as being like shimmer or like spring. Uh, did you, how did you go about capturing that sense of, uh, of, of the sort of uh, the, 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 the zapping energy of young people's conversation? Uh, how much of that is shaped by your own time teaching English in Montpellier? Um, oh, okay. Well, I mean, I um, Lily is not me. Uh, she has, she is sort of braver and more adventurous and, uh, and generally is the person I would have liked to have been at that age. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, I guess, and I don't know that I did, um, you know, actually manage to convey the, the, the sort of, um, zing of those times, although I, I hope I conveyed some of it. Um, but, you know, just trying to remember what it was like to be, to be um, a young person in that kind of um, limbo 
between you know finishing university and then either starting work or going on to um you know further education or whatever um you know that kind of uh, liminal space where everything seems possible which is exciting and at the same time it's kind of scary because you just you know you're trying to envisage what your life will be like and you don't and you don't know um so i guess that was um just some of what i tried to convey and you know i think we probably all remember the, the, the intensity of friendships we had at that age when you know you would sit up all night talking um you'd listen to music together you'd party together um you know, you would rearrange the world with your friends. Um, and those friendships don't necessarily last, but they're very, they're very intensely lived while they do. And that's, that's something I wanted to convey too. Um, I think there's a, there's, there's a special quality to that time. Um, and the other thing, I mean, I want, the reason I, I had Lily and France was that when in Australian literature, if um, a character is an Asian migrant to Australia, um, they're usually living in Australia or they might be traveling to visit their homeland. They might be back in their homeland or their parents' homeland. But we don't often see the migrant, Asian migrants, I should say, as cosmopolitans traveling mm. in, you know, sort of white countries in Europe, for instance. So I wanted to kind of extend um, what we might call the image repertoire um, of Asian characters in Australian fiction. So that was another reason for setting that um, story in France. At, as you point out, of course, it was a time and a place I knew well because I too taught English in Montpellier in um, 1980-81. And one of the things I enjoy about Scary Monsters and also about uh, some of your other novels uh, is your emphasis on platonic friendships. I feel like there's an awful lot in literature about uh, romantic relationships, but perhaps platonic friendships are a little uh, little underdone. Uh, is, is that your sense? Thank you so much, Andrew. You're, a, you're such a perceptive reader. Um, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, Friendship is, is oh, you know, the, the, there, are not, there are some novels, there are some novels, of, uh, very good novels about friendship, but mostly the, the majority are about, you know, romantic uh, relationships, as you, as you point out. Um, and, yeah, it seems to me to be so important in people's lives. So I... I really, um, yeah, it's something that really interests me. It's important to me in my life, friendship. And um, I, I have very deliberately set out to, to write about, about it. I have to ask you, there's a little motif that uh, pops up in, uh, in a couple of your novels, um, which is that of two friends who have a common word that is their, their own special word to describe things which are, uh, are off-colour. Uh, so in Questions of Travel, it is caddish, uh, and in Scary Monsters, the, uh, uh, the girlfriends have the phrase, uh, n'est pas intéressant. Um, does this mean that when you were a child, you had a special friend and uh, shared a shared a word which uh, which you used to, do, to to describe things you didn't like in the world? And if so, what was the word? <laughs> you're such a you're such a good reader. I I mean I I, I didn't, or if I did, I don't remember it. Um, and I had completely forgotten that there is any that there's that link to questions of travel. Um, which, you know, I sort of wrote now, oh, well, she was published in 2012, so I must have finished writing it in 2011. So, mm. you know, and I've had another novel uh, and another little book of criticism in between. So I <laughs> had completely forgotten that when I was writing The Scary Monsters. But that's the reason we have readers to, to, to pick up the things we're not aware of. So thank you very much. 
Well, it's a lovely way of, of sort of crystallising the, uh, the bond that they have. Uh, and, uh, you know, also sitting across it, I guess, you know, much more obviously is, uh, is David Bowie, uh, from whom the uh, title is drawn, but, but who, as you point out, uh, has this uh, sort of gets a little too close to fascism. Uh, how, do you, how do you see that uh, the overlay of, of, of race and racism uh, running, running through Scary Monsters? Gosh, that's a big question. Um, so if I just talk about Lily uh, in France, I would say that there are times when Lily is at a disadvantage um, because she's female, because she's a young woman. And other times she's at a disadvantage because she's not white. So those two things uh, one or the other um, might have the upper hand and sometimes she's not sure which one is working for her and which one is working against her. Um, but she, one of the things she observes around her is the um, treatment handed out to North African um, immigrants in France um, and she feels solidarity with them. Um, but then at other times when perhaps, you know, she's being harassed by a North African man, she, she um, of course, you know, reacts as a woman does who just wants to be left alone to enjoy her life um, in her own way. Um, so I think, I mean, I think race, who would deny that race is important? Uh, another thing about Lily, sorry, I should just... Um, I forgot, is that she is also someone who's not rich. And she has a mm. rich, her, her, her best friend, her bestie in Montpellier is a rich um, white English girl. So there's that kind of friction caused by money, no money. Um, so, you know, I think obviously race is incredibly important in determining one's experience of the world, but so is class. Um, so is gender, um, so are a whole host of other things. Um, I simply wrote, um, and, and I mean, I, I think, I hope I sort of touch on all of that in the course of the novel, um, but I did want to write a novel that centered migrant experience. And so I guess that inevitably race takes you know pride of place in in the novel um is this is the biggest of the scary monsters that that run through the novel then we come to lyle a, a novella that would that is uh, set in the uh, in the the near future there's no flying cars uh, it's not quite 1984 or The Handmaid's Tale, but I guess it's sort of 10% um, in that direction. Um, and suddenly the issue of ageism seems to loom uh, more, than, uh, more than where sexism has, has, has been more prominent in Lily's story. Um, I found Lyle sort of beguilingly interesting. Like he's, he's not somebody you'd want as a mate, but gee, he's a fascinating character. Oh, good. I'm so glad. You have exactly the reaction I, I hoped that readers would have. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that Lyle is, um, you know, has enough complexity to make um, readers see him as, you know, at once um, a kind of, what should I say, someone who has, has embraced all the wrong sorts of Australian values. So, <laughs> you know, kind of fetish, fetish for, for real estate, avid consumerism, um, you know, um, ruthless individualism. But at the same time, who, who is doing all of that? Because he so desperately, as an Asian man, wants to fit in with Australia. So he's hoping to pass under the radar by being 
what he thinks of as, you know, sort of the perfect Australian. Uh, and he must try extra hard because he's not white. So he, he, he you know, he is always um, clearly identifiable as um, someone who is from elsewhere. Um, and just interrupting you there, I, I love at one point you say that uh, that what all migrants really want is to be Danish, uh, because uh, no 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 one no one ever really looks down their nose at the Danes. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, you don't really know that someone is Danish, but you don't really know that anyone who's white um, and and um, it might be a migrant is um, is a migrant. I mean, I have a friend who's a uh, a British migrant, um, English, um, to Australia. And she says, you know, at writers' festivals, there's often, um, oh, you know, some kind of panel discussion where people talk about migrant experience. She says she's never asked to appear on those panels, yet she too was a, you know, is mm. a migrant to this country. But um, her experience, of course, as someone who spoke English and is white, means that she she was able to slot in, um, in, in perhaps psychologically difficult for her, but you know, looking at her from the outside, no one would automatically pick on her because you know she, she looks different, because she doesn't. Um, so I think what all migrants really long for is that kind of um, invisibility at times to just be able to you know, um, go about one's life, and not feel that one is conspicuously different. One of the other glimmers, I guess, between the two parts of Scary Monsters is uh, national identity in France and Australia. And, and as I was reading it, I was thinking about the, uh, the fact that uh, they have a national day that honours a prison breakout we have a national day that honours the founding of a prison colony. Um, are, there, are there aspects of the French identity that you'd like to, to see Australians learn from? Oh, well, I'd certainly like um, the um, January 26th to be no longer celebrated as our national day. Um, I think, I mean, you know, France is very far from being an ideal society. I think one of the things I really admire is um, the value placed on education, which means absolutely, um, you know, free public education. Um, so there are some private schools in France, but they tend to be church schools and, uh, or perhaps other religious schools, and are generally considered, um, you know, if you're if you've gone through your life in your schooling in one of those places, it's kind of looked down on a bit really, uh, because the teaching is not considered to be as good. The education is not considered to be as good, <coughs> excuse me, and isn't as good um, as you receive in a French um, public school. So I think that's something that really um, Australia could, could benefit from. It just kills me that, um, you know, we like to think of ourselves as egalitarian, and yet we have this deeply, deeply divisive system, you know, for everyone from the age of five. Um, that just, that is just wrong, it seems to me. Yes, you can see the benefits to um, both egality and fraternity of, uh, of taking on some of those, uh, those ideas. I'm, I'm curious as to your uh, the, the, the phase in your life when you became a writer and uh, uh, I'm quite influenced by a University of Chicago scholar David Gallinson who says there's two uh, kinds of, uh, of artists. There's conceptualists who make radical innovations at a very early age, so think you know James Joyce or Pablo Picasso, and then there's experimentalists who uh, uh, develop quite slowly over a long period of refinement, you know, think uh, uh, Shakespeare or, or Dickens. Um, your, do, what, what benefits do you think you had from starting your writing career in your 40s rather than, than in your 20s? Did that allow you a time to build up a, a stock of stories? Do you feel as though the characters are richer for having had those couple of extra decades of living in the world before you put pen to paper? 
Sure. I mean, one of the things that allowed me to do was to read much more. Right. I had read much more by the time I, you know, had two decades more reading by the time I started to write. And writers come from readers, really. Um, so that was an advantage. That's an advantage. Um, and I think having something to say is an advantage. And then, <laughs> you know, a very practical advantage is having had, you know, an extra, oh, you know, 15 years or so of building up a bank balance. Which writers were most influential on for you? It changes all the time. You have writers, or oh, I have writers that, you know, I read obsessively now, um, but I wasn't reading 10 years ago, um, and vice versa. Um, you know, I mean, just just heaps of people, really. You know, I think in some sense, it's, it's kind of an unsatisfying answer for you, but it, it is the truth, is that, Everything you read, really, you know, it's like it's like just the um, the mulch that goes into the mulching machine, and then it all comes out all mixed up. Um, so you know, I read a lot of um, growing up. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, there were a lot of sort of older books in my house, including a whole um, set of Agatha Christie's that had belonged to, I think, my older siblings or old relatives of some kind. Well, I read all of them, you know, by the time I was 10, I'd say. And my second novel, The Hamilton Case, is a kind of deconstruction of a classic 1930s whodunit. Mm. Um, so, so there you go. You know, I mean, I read those books with, you know, just as a child for the pure pleasure of finding out whodunit. And 30 plus years later, I write a, hood, a, a kind of, you know, literary whodunit. So, so there you go. You never know what is, everything is of use in some, in some sense. Everything's and, an influence. And to what extent do you consider yourself an introvert versus an extrovert? Because for somebody who is writing about the world and, and worlds and travel, there must be a, a need to get out there and, and gather material. You, you write so with such rich texture about people and places. Um, how much do you, do you need to be out there gathering and, and how much do you, do you want to just uh, retreat to your uh, uh, book-lined, uh, book, book bird-filled bird uh, room to, uh, to, to write? Uh, well, I mean, when I'm writing, I'm not socialising very much and I'm not someone who um, can write when I'm travelling. Um, which is annoying, you know, I envy those people who can just sit, sit up their laptop in a hotel room and keep going. Um, I don't seem to be able to do that. So I think that when I'm actually writing, I need to be, you know, at it. Um, but, you know, I enjoy seeing friends at the same time or, you know, in, of an evening or on a weekend. Um, so I think I'm a bit of both. I, I need time to myself because even when... You know, this is, again, comes from reading, right? Writers come from readers. And if you read, it's a solitary activity. So you are used to, you know, being by yourself. Um, but at the same time, you know, I mean, I have a partner. I would be uh, lonely, I think, if I, if I lived on my own. I would have a much greater need to go out and meet people, even when I'm writing. Um, so... At the moment, I'm feeling, you know, the, the pandemic has meant that we're all staying home more. Mm. And I'm certainly feeling the effects of that and that my world has shrunk. Um, because, you know, quite apart from travel, even going out to an art gallery um, has been so difficult in, in recent times. Um, or, you know, just moving about Australia um, or, yeah, um, mm, I, I think I feel at the moment that my, um, my world has shrunk in a way which, which isn't, um, 
which isn't good for my work. Um, but, well, you know, one hopes that will, will change. You're, you've had a remarkably uh, productive uh, uh, decade and a bit. Uh, do you have particular writing routines which you've found to be useful? Do you start at a particular time? Do you aim to, to hit a word target? How do you manage to, to churn out so many high-quality uh, passages? Oh, thank you. Um, look, I, it's a very um, boring routine, you know, as Flaubert, I think, who said, be orderly and regular in your habits so that you can be, you know, bold and um, experimental in your work. Um, and I think the thing about a novel is that you know, it's a it's a it's the long haul, right? Um, short short stories are a sprint. A novel is a marathon, and you kind of need to live in the work and with the work, um, because I find that when I start out, I don't, um, you know, I have a sort of vague idea of where I'm going, but a lot of things come up in the course of writing and that's because I am immersed in the world of the novel and it changes shape and it changes direction um, and it's the richer for it I hope. So to answer your question I mean I really work Monday to Friday mostly in the morning. Um, I, I start you know early as soon as I've had breakfast and a shower and I um, would be at my desk definitely by nine at the latest and then I when I'm doing the first draft I will write a minimum of 500 words a day um yeah some days I reach that easily by lunchtime but other days um either just make it by the skin of my teeth or you know go back in the afternoon and finish um but usually by just by lunchtime, around 500, um, definitely 500, but you know, obviously sometimes I go a bit over. Um, and I find that that's about as much, it doesn't sound much, does it? I mean, you know, you say this to journalists and they, they their jaws drop because, you know, they're just used to having to write great numbers of words at great speed. Um, but I'm not good at that. And I find, again, it's about living with the work. I revise as I go along. Um, and about 500 words of thinking, maybe 600, 700 on a very good day. That's about as much sort of thinking as I can do in the space of that time. Then, you know, I'm obviously thinking about it even when I'm not writing. Um, and I can go back to it the next day and do that amount again. And that doesn't sound like much, but if you do it every day, just even 500 words a day for uh, four weeks, well, that's 10,000 words a month. That means you can have the draft of a novel in seven months. First draft. I mean, that is only a first draft. I would do usually three or four drafts before I show it to anyone else. Um, but, you know, once you have got a first draft in place, then the heavy lifting is done. Um, then you, you refine and you refine, you improve, you improve. Um, so that's my sort of process. There's nothing very um, exciting about it. It's just, just steady. It's, it's just steady. I think just steady, keeping at it. Do you have tricks for picking up the theme the next day? Uh, the, do you do you employ the strategy of, of breaking off mid sentence and so you know when to when where, where to restart? Oh, I'm too much of a perfectionist to, to and too much of an editor really still to break off mid sentence. But I like to, if possible, know where I am. You know where I'm going in that scene or, or so that I know what I'll be writing about the next day. Um, I think that's helpful. Um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, yeah, 
and I will often start by just writing, reading over what I had written the previous day um, to kind of get myself into the swing of it. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are just what, what you know, people ha have different processes. And what I say to writers who are, you know, who are newer writers and, and um, ask about that, as I say, just, you know, find what works for you and then, and then stick to it. Um, I, I have friends who, who don't work like this at all. They, they work in bursts, so they might do 3,000 words a day for three days or five days and then they'll have a break of four or five or six days um you know it, it, everyone is so everyone is so different um but as i say you know this is this is what works for me and so this is the process i've employed um it it kind of makes me feel that i'm getting somewhere and that you know, I suppose, again, not having started writing till I was 40, I, I kind of like the feeling of sitting down at my desk. It, it, it feels like, you know, I'm settling down to work, that this is a real, this is a real job, you know, and really that writing is. I mean, what people call inspiration is, I think, the stuff that just comes out of the writing itself. That's what I was talking about before, the kind of sticking with the process and ideas come to you just from immersion in the work. But, you know, it is really 90% uh, about, 98% about showing up. Yes, I, I can't remember which writer it was, but it was in one, in one of those uh, Paris Review Writers on Writers uh, uh, essays. Uh, it was someone saying that uh, you need to show up every day. Sometimes the muse shows up with you and they're great days. Um, sometimes the muse doesn't show up and they're frustrating days. But the last thing you want is to uh, not be at your desk when the muse uh, turns up uh, ready to, uh, to flutter onto your shoulder and give you inspiration. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, yeah, yeah, showing up, showing up is, is where it's at. So a lot of your work draws on your story, but obviously, you know, then, then builds well, well beyond your autobiography. Um, as somebody who writes a lot about identity and race and gender and so on, I wanted to ask you about the, um, the incidents uh, a couple of years ago with uh, author Janine Cummins, uh, who wrote a novel called American Dirt um, uh, about uh, a Latina woman, and then uh, it was revealed that she wasn't Latina and uh, Flatiron Books cancelled the book tour. Um, do you, uh, have incidents like that made you reflect on the extent to which um, you can write outside your personal experience or, or should write outside your personal experience? Look, that's an interesting and vast and complex question. Um, there are certain kinds of identities I would be wary of writing about, at least writing from the point of view of, of certain identities. So, for instance, um, I have a non-binary character in Scary Monsters, who's a secondary character. Mm. And that it's um, because it's Lyle's point of view, it's how Lyle sees them. Their point of view is never explored because I just don't think I would be able to do that well, apart from anything else, you know. Um, so I think that is the important thing of whether as a fiction writer you really believe that you can get into the skin of someone who whose experience is very very different from yours um, of you know by necessity um, so I think you know the answer sort of boring as it is it depends I mean, I heard an American writer 
not so long ago, a white American writer who was asked this question because she had has a novel in which there, there is a black American character. And she said, oh, well, I felt I could get away with it. And that was the phrase, get away with it, uh, which is kind of a revealing phrase, I think. Um, because you know it was set in um i haven't read the novel but i think it was in a in a legal context and she said i've done a lot of work in that context and so and i've met african americans in that context who are um you know lawyers or or whatever you know guards in courtrooms all kinds of you know african-american people working in that context and i was listening to that and thinking well sure but would, I mean, would you feel confident that your experience in that courtroom or that legal context would be the same as that of an African-American? I don't know that, I, you know, I, that, that, that seems to me to be very um, questionable. Um, there, there have been stories in the media, for instance, about um, lawyers of colour in, in Britain, um, South Asian lawyers or, or Black British um, lawyers being mistaken for defendants in court mm. beca just because of their, their ethnicity. So, you know, I imagine that those people go into work with kind of slightly tense waiting for perhaps perhaps that moment will arise in their in their day which a white person wouldn't know so i guess it's about feeling confident that you can do it well which means that if it's a major character whose point of view you're representing and their experience you know their identity is far removed from yours, um, maybe, you know, if you, I, mean, I think, I don't, I don't want to say people shouldn't do it, but I think they have to be prepared to have difficult conversations about it afterwards. Um, yes. Having all of that, I have written from the point of view of men, obviously, um, and you know, I don't know, do I do it well? Um, uh, you know, uh, what do you think, Andrew? Um, I certainly thought you wrote about Lyle as compellingly as a male author would have uh, would have done. But, you know, I thought it was interesting when uh, Thomas Keneally said a few years ago that uh, he wouldn't write The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith from the perspective of an Aboriginal man if he was writing again today. So, you know, as you say, there's certain identities that it seems uh, no longer okay to take on and the space which seems problematic uh, appears to be growing. And I feel like it could potentially grow so large that the world would lose uh, some of some of the best of Michelle de Kretzer in the future, as as somebody who does write a lot about uh, about identity and race. So it worries me a little. Yeah, it worries me too. But I think, I mean, I you know, for instance, I really wouldn't. I don't writing from the point of view of an indigenous character i would just worry that i would get so many things wrong because i think you know relationships to country for instance are something that i mean i don't know i suppose if i went and spent a lot of time within indigenous people uh, living in a traditional way i might feel or even not living in an indigenous in a tradi traditional way, but just you know very connected to to country, I might feel confident enough to do it. But I would absolutely expect to have conversations about it afterwards. Um, it, it's it's a really it's a big question for fiction writers in our time, and mm. I think one reason why so many people are writing about the past or about the future makes engaging with the present feels feels scary feels fraught i suppose 
Um, mm, yeah, it, 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 it is a problem, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Um, but I think, I think writers should be, if they really feel they can do it well, they shouldn't, they should take it on and be prepared to talk about it afterwards and be open to, to conversations about it. And, um, I mean, look, you don't have to be writing from the point of view of another character. It's just about getting things wrong. So I remember reading a novel by a white Australian writer who's a very good writer and someone I know and like very much. And there was a fact about Sri Lanka in, in her book that was just wrong. And I just mm. remember feeling that you know, it was a date, a historical date. And I just remember feeling a little bit, I suppose, what? deflated but kind of hurt that neither she nor her editor had got that you know had had sort of done their research on that point it, it's very easily verifiable and gotten it right um and so and that was a tiny thing you know a tiny thing um and I wouldn't say that the novel was not a good novel because of it it is a good novel but I just, I bring it up just to tell you how, how one can feel sensitive about these things, especially if you belong to, well, in that instance, to a country um, or an ethnicity, perhaps, that isn't very much represented um, in, in Anglophone literature. So I guess that's the point too, isn't it? Um, yes. That an indigenous writer might feel, oh, oh, sorry, we'll go back to your example of the American, white American pretending to be Latinx, um, that Latinx readers might feel a bit upset that, um, you know, their, their culture, their history wasn't being being accurately represented. Michelle, what advice would you give to your teenage self? This too shall pass. Did you, that sounds like you uh, suffered a, a bit too much teenage angst. Were, uh, did, were you an uptight teenager? I don't know that I was uptight, but it was, um, you know, I came to Australia when I was 14 and it was a time of upheaval and I think I just enjoyed, I, I think at school I just worked really, I just, I was a good student, you know, I just, I just put my head down, um, you, you know, school provides you with a goal, right, when you move to a new country, if, you're, if you are going to school, it's much kind of easier in a way than someone who has to go out and find work. School provided me with a role. I had always been a good student and I just kept on being a good student. So I just basically had my head down working. Um, I enjoyed university much, much more. I wasn't a sporty kid. I wasn't, I had friends. Um, I, I had had very, some very good, very nice friends, but um, yeah, I, I, university was better. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? That Australia is governed by progressive politics. Well, I guess it was when you arrived here in 1972. It was a propitious year to be arriving after 20, 23 years. I remember the feeling of the excitement, you know, that this was an amazing place. And I sort of felt a little echo of this in uh, Scary Monsters, where you have uh, uh, Mitterrand's uh, election win in 1981, uh, ushering in uh, the, 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 the left into uh, uh, the, uh, the, the presidency for the first time in the, in, in the Republic. Oh, that's such a perceptive comment, but this was exactly the same kind of thing, wasn't it? I mean, you know, a Labour government hadn't been in power in Australia for, what was it, something like 30 years uh, when Whitlam... 23. Yes. Very sorry, got elected. Um, 
and in France it had been longer because I think the, the last left government had gone in 37, 38. So, you know, longer still. And um, that feeling of just rejoicing and hopefulness on the left. And, you know, I do say when I'm talking about the, um, this book that one of the connections, you know, people say the um, Lyle section is kind of bleak, and it is, but it's fiction. Lily is, uh, well, as far as the political events go, they're fact. Mm. And we have, a, we have an election coming up, a general election. And, you know, there is an opportunity to, to, to not turn both with luck and with goodwill to not turn fiction into fact. Yes, I think anyone who imagines that elections don't matter need only look at uh, the US presidential election of 2016, which uh, you know just so so radically changed the course of the country. Uh, let me uh, move from the uh, the high world of public policy to ask you: uh, When are you most happy? Oh, I think when I'm walking somewhere, somewhere beautiful, whether it's uh, in the countryside or along the coast. Um, when I can see a, a horizon, I think. I think horizons are important. So not when you're writing. That's so interesting. I thought you'd say that you'd, you loved writing. God, Andrew, how, you, you've talked to so many writers. You should know better. <laughs> Goodness me. <laughs> um, I think finishing a first draft, there's a feeling of euphoria because, mm. you know, uh, I remember talking to another writer and we're complaining we're both writing our books and saying oh how horrible it is you know it's it's just this sort of it's like bringing up your insides with a hook every day and I said to her why do we do it and she said because it feels so good when you stop <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a brilliant answer but no I think I think um I think I, I mean I love that. If I walk and with my partner, perhaps with a dog, that's lovely too, walking. Um, I mean, I also love, love having a book I can get, get lost in. Um, so, you know, those are different kinds of pleasures. Um, sitting down to a, a meal with good friends around the table, that's another kind. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Oh, uh, walking, I would say. So, you know, exercise, going out and, um, and walking. Yeah. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Oh, look, it's a bit embarrassing, but my partner and I watch The Voice every year on television. Um, uh, do you know what that is, Andrew? You're... I do, I do. It seems possibly the mildest vice that one could possibly have. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, whenever I tell anyone I know, they say, really? You watch the voice? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, we particularly like the blind auditions. Uh, well, as as an economist, there's a uh, we we love blind auditions, and there's a whole uh, literature there about the uh, the benefits of blinding when it comes to uh, gender and race. Um, my f my favourite story being the moment when the uh, uh, Boston Symphony Orchestra moves to blind auditions, and suddenly the number of women in the orchestra jumps. Uh, fi finally, Michelle, which um, person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I think probably having, you know, uh, grown up in Sri Lanka, because as we were saying before, it just, it shows you the great disparity in wealth and opportunities of all kinds in the world. It shows me that anyway. And also that, you know, really it's material possessions um, are, are nice, but they're not necessary.
Michelle de Kretz's latest book is Scary Monsters. Michelle, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you so much. You're my, you're my ideal reader, Andrew, I would have you know. <laughs> well, and you're my ideal writer, so that works out well. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion with Michelle de Kretzer, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Lonely Planet founder Tony Wheeler and novelists Alice Pung and Marcus Zusak. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.